You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 409 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest is a PhD, Maria Fernanda Olarte Sierra, and she's a social scientist based in Vienna, but with a wealth of experience having worked as well a social scientist, having investigated and uh, uh, positioning herself as an ethnographer, uh, looking into the science of forensic experts in Colombia. So forensic experts in the context of the Colombian conflict and the contrasts of the open brackets post uh, accord uh, reality that we're living in Colombia at the moment. So a fascinating interview conversation with uh, Dr. Maria Fernanda there and a real pleasure to have someone of her academic standing on the podcast. So that will be episode 409 after the news, the Colombia news report from Emily Hart. Of course, thank you to all of you who signed up and are now supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com uh, forward slash Columbia Calling. And on Coffee, that's ko-fi forward slash Columbia Calling, where you can make one-off donations. Of course, this goes towards Emily Hart and, of course, the economic viability of the podcast. So we are immensely grateful to all of you there. This next week, uh, 410, Emily Hart will take over and she has got a literary sensation, someone who's high up in the literary world, to talk about Colombian literature and indeed uh, Caicedo. So there you go. And that will be Tuesday next week. So thank you again, everyone, for tuning in continually and, of course, sharing. I had great feedback on Annika Fajardo's conversation last week. Many people wrote in to say, and especially uh, people who are half Colombian, half another nationality, wrote in to say that it really. Uh, rang true to them as well, how it is to be sort of half Colombian and half something else. So uh, that was pretty interesting indeed. Of course, the most popular of the year is still our conversation with Emily Hart when we answered the 10 questions that you guys, the listeners, put to us about Colombia. So thank you again. Of course, revisit it if you need to and uh, episodes, previous episodes. So I will be back in the third segment with Dr. Maria Fernanda Olarte. Uh, now over to Emily Hart with the news. Thank you and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of January 24th, 2022. More violence this week in Arauca on the border with Venezuela as a car bomb left one person dead and five wounded last Wednesday night in the town of Saravena. The explosion occurred in the centre of town, 15 metres from the headquarters of a human rights foundation where 50 social leaders were under protection. Since the start of the year, there have been intensifying clashes between FARC dissidents and ELN guerrillas in Arauca, 
causing deaths, displacement and kidnappings. Around 40 have been killed and more than 1,500 people have fled their homes over the last two weeks. The governor of Arauca has declared a curfew for some municipalities supported by the national government. Violence has also spilled over into the Apure state of Venezuela, forcing hundreds of people to flee into Colombia. President Ivan Duque has responded to Russia's request that Colombia re-establish diplomatic relations with Venezuela in order to improve the situation on the border. Duque reported, saying that this would be to ally Colombia with those who protect terrorism and traffic drugs, saying that he would not be blackmailed into diplomacy with President Nicolás Maduro. Whoever protects that regime is supporting international terrorism, he said. The decriminalisation of abortion in Colombia has faltered, as the ruling, due to be delivered last year, is yet again tied up. One of the judges due to deliberate on the issue, Alejandro Linares, was declared impeded from doing so due to his having spoken to the media about the issue. Then, last Thursday, the full chamber of the Constitutional Court recommenced the discussion, but the vote was ultimately tied. The debate will resume when the two new judges review the files. Abortion was partially legalised in 2006 in limited cases. Rape, fetal deformity and risk to the health of the mother. However, it is estimated that around 90% of abortions take place illegally in Colombia. 350 women were convicted or sanctioned for having abortions between 2006 and mid-2019, including at least 80 minors. Elimination of abortion from the penal code would not widen the circumstances in which women and girls can seek abortion, but it would guarantee an end to criminal prosecutions. Meanwhile, another chamber of the Constitutional Court has thrown a major spanner in the works for Duque's promise to resume glyphosate spraying as a keystone of the fight against the cocaine trade. This week, the court overturned the approval of the National Environmental Licensing Authority, meaning that spraying cannot go ahead, as planned. This fumigation is a form of chemical eradication aimed at illegal coca crops, the base material for cocaine. The chemical was deemed possibly carcinogenic by the World Health Organization in 2015 when the policy was banned. Many also believe it destroys ecosystems or simply doesn't work, though some on the political right still see spraying as a key way to reduce the production of cocaine in Colombia. Ruling on four petitions which brought together 100 campesino, indigenous and Afro-Colombian organisations, the court stated that the government has not properly consulted those who would be affected. It now has one year to do so across communities living in 104 municipalities in 14 departments. During 2021, Colombian migration authorities recorded a record high of 107,000 migrants passing through the country to cross into Panama through the Darien jungle. More than 87% of them were from Haiti. The Darien Gap, the jungle that divides Panama and Colombia, is one of the most dangerous border crossings in the world. The figure is higher than the sum of the figure for the previous 15 years, and numbers do not look likely to drop this year. UNICEF calculated last year that one in five crossing the Darien Gap were children, 
half of those were under five years of age. Brainer David Kukunyame, a 14-year-old training to be an indigenous guard and part of his village's political youth movement, was murdered on Friday the 14th of January in the Las Delicias Reservation in Buenos Aires, Cauca. The attack occurred when the indigenous guard was carrying out territorial control duties after receiving information on the presence of armed men in their reservation. Brainer David was shot dead along with Guillermo Chicame, an indigenous guard and escort agent of the National Protection Unit. Two others were injured. The indigenous authorities have attributed responsibility for the attack to dissident groups of the FARC, the Jaime Martinez structure. Indepaz now counts nine murdered social leaders and ten massacres so far this year. Coronavirus cases continue to rise in Colombia amid the new peak caused by the Omicron variant, with around 28,000 new cases per day, up from a daily average of 2,000 this time last month. The Ministry of Health recorded 217 deaths this Sunday, a figure not seen since late July last year when the third peak was declining. However, around 80% of Colombians have now had one dose of vaccine and 60% are now fully vaccinated. 10% have also now had booster jabs. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is Columbia Calling, episode 409. And we're here with a very special guest, Maria Fernanda Olarte. She's in Vienna, so perhaps our first ever guest in all these years in Vienna. She's Colombian. She's from Bogota, but she has a PhD in social sciences from the University of Amsterdam. She's done a postdoc in Manchester, and now she's got a job in Vienna. But we're going to talk about some of the more in-depth studies she has made, of course, in the context of Colombia and the Colombian armed conflict. And she has been studying, so been alongside and interviewing, uh, I guess, forensic experts. And forensic experts, as some of us know, of course, you know, there's a lot going on with the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz and the forensic investigations going on. So let me just say at this very moment, thank you so much for getting in touch, Maria Fernanda, and thank you for coming on the uh, podcast on this cold, windy, snowy evening in Vienna. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really, really a pleasure. No, and also it's great because, you know, we've, we've managed to fit in a time in your busy life. You've moved from San Sebastian to Vienna and you're, you're obviously getting involved in a new job. But we've got, you know, 40 odd minutes with you now before, before everything takes off again in your life. Let's start. Let's start, though, with, you know, let's talk about you and your relationship to to this forensic investigations and 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 tell us a little bit of a bit of background as of what is forensic identification and and what does it entail okay well i'll start with for the part of forensic identification and um we all seen this csi type of of shows and this this idea that uh, identification is easy and is quick and it happens between uh, you know advertisement but it's actually super difficult to achieve uh, 
identification mm -hmm. because of uh, many things. The first one is that it's not only to name a collection of remains, but that has to make sense together. So the name and the story, they need to go to that They need to make sense. So you can say this is Juan, but then if Juan's family uh, and friends, they say it, it doesn't sound like Juan, Juan was never there, then you cannot say it's, it takes time to make an identification. Um, and as I was saying, is because it has to be a comprehensive story behind the name. So you need not only forensic doing forensics doing this, they need relatives. And that's why uh, family members are so important in the whole process. They don't do this in a vacuum, in a laboratory. I mean, they do the identification in a laboratory, but they need con constant contact with relatives or friends. Uh, and the other thing is that is what people tend to believe is that with a DNA testing is enough to identify. But DNA alone doesn't work. In order to, to do a match with DNA, you need to have well, the DNA sample of the person you want to identify and a population against you are going to match this. You're going, we only exist in DNA terms, we only exist as individuals, as long as we exist within a population. So you need to have a, an idea or where, where to, or with, with which population you can make a match. So if my family is looking for me and they don't give a sample of blood or saliva or whatever it is, they might do my DNA testing at the, I don't know, Attorney General's office DNA lab, but they will never know who I am because there's no familial, there's no, my population is not there. So forensics is really, forensic sciences in general, they need to work together. Forensic anthropologies, dentistry, medicine, ballistics, a beautiful one that is a forensic entomologists who are these people who work with the other living creatures that live in your body after you die. And they give a lot of information about where you are located, the time of death, if you have been poisoned or if you had taken, I don't know, drugs or whatever. So they are very, very rich. So you also have these other specialists that do not work directly on the body, but around the body. So it's a, an achievement to, to be able to identify a body. This is, I mean, of course, my knowledge as you suggested in that first part, my knowledge of forensic science is CSI. Uh, so they, you know, immediately put the, I guess the, you know, the slide uh, with the hair sample or saliva sample swabbed from the inside of the cheek of the victim or scraped from underneath the nails or if they're looking for blood, you know, and uh, and they yeah. put it into the their system and it, and you see the the flashing running up on the computer screen and going through, going through, and then suddenly in, within five minutes, as you say, in in a commercial break, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. up and and the face comes up. And so, what I mean, what you've just explained is that it this is a long and incredibly in-depth investigation. And, and what I like is your social science side of it is the families need to be involved, not just for the DNA. It's, it's an identity thing. Why is this person here? 
what was this person doing? And then when you get into your entomologist, which I had no idea about at all, because I just figured, I just figured, oh yeah, we can tell from the blood that this person was, you know, on, on hallucinogens or, or whatever, but this is a whole different thing. And then of course, I guess if we're saying it by the, um, the, uh, the quickness of decomposition or so on, you can see how far, you know, the bugs or whatever's inside the body, or I don't know, this all comes out with that as well. So therefore you can, you can accurately backdate a death and from when and age. I mean, that's, this is far different to whatever. Yeah. And I think anyone has an idea about, and so you have been investigating this and have been observing these different styles. And so once you've got into that and you're, you're working or in, interviewing forensic experts, uh, how does this fit then? Cause you've interviewed 18 forensic experts. How does you, this fit in, in, in the Colombian context? Because we know that there are mass graves all over the country. There's lots in the Llanos. Uh, I mean, we're currently seeing in Dabeba, Mutata, all up there in Antioquia. Uh, and of course, they need to go through the cemetery in Puerto Berrio, where, the, where, where people adopted the cadavers that came along the river and were dumped into the Magdalena because so many in that curve in the river arrived up there that they buried them and gave them names. Um, there's so much to be done. So can, can you just put it into the context then? It's because I mean, Colombian forensic science is advanced or is it very much behind? Super advanced, okay. super advanced. It's um, incredibly advanced. Uh, forensic experts, Colombian forensic experts, trained forensic experts elsewhere. Okay. Because of the knowledge, mm -hmm. the expertise and the, the equipment. Mm -hmm. It's a very high-end, uh, state-of-the-art technology that forensic experts at the Attorney General Office have. Mm -hmm. And um, so let me give you, let me go a little bit back to answer your question. I started working on with forensic experts uh, 2012, mm -hmm. but since 2016, I started doing a more active in research and I had, as a core researcher, a forensic anthropologist of the Attorney General's office, a person who has been doing this for more than 20 years. So it's a long, long time for him. Um, and in that project, what I wanted to see was uh, how forensic knowledge, on what they do, what they tell us as the general public, how that gives us information different kind of information or nuanced information relating the conflict. So because what we know from, of the conflict is what we know from uh, audience, uh, when, when criminals or uh, ex-paramilitary or ex-guerrilla members, they demobilize and they tell this, they, they give us this testimony. So we know that, we know from victims, we know from journalists, we know from social scientists, but we don't know from forensics because we haven't asked. That's the main point. We haven't asked about, we haven't asked them. They don't have time to go around writing papers. Uh, and this is very sensitive information as well. So everything has to be anonymized and taken with all the care. And um, 
So I wanted to know what can we learn from forensics who are day in, day out, working directly on victims. And with that, um, and by the hand of Jaime uh, Castro, who's my co-researcher in, in that on that project, one of the things that we that I yeah that we were able to show is that given the expertise and experience they have, and and since I was telling you, in order to identify the victim, you need to know the story, and and they would tell you any forensic expert, especially anthropologists, who are the ones the first forensic expert to be in contact with a body is an anthropologist. So they would say to you, the first thing that I need to know is why this person is on my table. What happened to this person? I need to know what's the story behind. So they, there's a lot of investigation. So they know the dynamics of the conflict. They know, and they can tell you if this grave is parliamentary or not. They can tell you if this person, uh, they can tell, depending on the state of the body, of course, but if, if you have soft tissue, you can, they can make claims about torture. On, on bones, you can't, because there's no scientific evidence as such, but they can provide information saying, it looks like this person was tortured. This looked like this person was um, raped. Uh, so we, when you ask them, you start to know these nuances about the conflict. And one of the things that we came across that I asked to different forensic experts at different moments is this idea of, well, not idea, this fact that in some of the graves of the paramilitary, bodies are dismembered. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that they were uh, dismembered alive with the chainsaws. So we, we know that the paramilitary, they did this it, when they enter a town and the, in the massacres, they did that. We know that for a fact. But when you ask the forensics about the graves, so what they uncovered later on, they found this very unlikely so it was not to produce, it was not meant for torturing. It was meant for making the body smaller. Because if you have a smaller body, you have a smaller hole and you can do this faster. So the, the graves from the paramilitary are very um, sloppy graves. They are shallow, they are small, well, smaller, and they are at the side of the roads. They wanted and they needed to get rid of these bodies, which were meant to be disappeared. So these were they was, these were assassinations, but they were not meant to be to become public. They were meant to be hidden. So, so we, by asking forensic experts, we know this about this particular understanding of how, for instance, uh, um, as part of the franchising of the AUSE which franchised forms of disappearing and killing and massacring and everything, they also had to develop a franchise of how to bury bodies and get rid of them. So that's before, of course, the, the agreement. So, But then after that project, I moved into the one I'm doing now, and I'm looking at the two forensic groups that are brand new in Colombia, 
and they are part of the one is part of the hip and the other one is part of the unit for the search of disappeared persons. So before the agreement was signed, the peace agreement with the FARC was signed, the forensic activities were exclusively of the Attorney General Office and associated or, or affiliated organizations, the um, Institute of Legal Medicine, Sihin, um, Dihin, and so on and so forth. But with the peace accord and uh, the comprehensive, comprehensive system of truth, justice, reparation, and non-repetition, they developed these three mm-hmm. organizations. So the HEP, the Unit for the Search of Disappeared Persons, and the Truth Commission. Both the HEP and the Unit for the Search of Disappeared Persons, they have forensic teams which is new in Colombia. We didn't have that before. The HEP, of course, they are in charge of dealing with cases for transitional justice. The team is part of the unit, the investigation and accusation unit of the HEP. That's where they are housed. Whereas the one at the unit for the search, they are by nature, because it's the nature of the unit, extrajudicial and humanitarian which means that whatever information is delivered to the unit remains uh, confidential. Mm. However, in the agreement is very clearly specified that forensic information can be requested. So the HEP can request forensic information, information that they, the, the experts at the unit uncover or find or develop. So, as of today, we have these two different teams. They they work in so many cases, they work together. In others, they are meant not to work together because they are looking for different people in principle. But that's of course not that easy because you were just mentioning the cemeteries. And for many reasons, uh, both teams started to look into cemeteries for the different kinds of victims they are dealing with. But when you deal with unidentified bodies, you have no idea who this person is or to which institution it belongs. So it's not that easy. It looks very clear on paper and it's a very good idea, but then how it's implemented, well, that's difficult. And they are struggling, of course. They are trying to find the ways of how to work around this. And these forensic experts, they have been working on this for many years. I mean, from eight till 20 years, I think we have. And they all have worked in Colombia. They know the context and they know each other. So they have a good relationship. But when they arrive, I don't know, at Dabeiba, who does what and who takes whom? So it's been a challenge for them. They are working very hard on finding the, the way and they, whatever it is, they are collecting the bodies and, and identifying as much as they can, or, or at least uh, the Institute of Legal Medicine is the one in charge of doing the identification, not, not the teams. They, they had to win. They, they search and exhume, uh, but the identification is part of the Institute of Legal Medicine. So they are dealing with this. They are dealing with a massive amount of uh, missing persons, and disappeared persons, uh, 
and also with a massive amount of unidentified bodies. And that's a challenge because, for instance, of the, the example you were giving of these people who adopted corpses as a, as a way of, as a caring practice. No, you, you do this because you care for this person. But then it's really difficult to establish an identification because you don't know that this grave is not of this person, but of somebody who adopted this person. And if the other person died, then this Pedro, whatever, well, how are they going to reach to this person? It's, it's difficult. Um, and But they are doing all the effort in the middle of a pandemic, which is not uh, something easy either. They were in lockdown as the rest of us. So for a for a lot of months, they, they had to hold the exhumation activities and the searching activities. So that's what it is now to be a forensic expert within the system of, of the comprehensive system. I, so when you talk about these two entities, uh, I can see that there's they can work together, but at the same time, there's going to be conflict between the two entities who's doing what it's kind of obviously morbid but it's like no that grave site is ours no it's ours it's you're you're fighting over corpses <laughs> uh i just wanted i mean and i wanted to go back because you were talking about this the the paramilitary grave site so the difference then with a guerrilla grave site is they they did deeper graves and they probably didn't dismember their uh, kills. What is the difference between the two uh, burials? Well, in general terms, the guerrilla would uh, bury it in their campsites mm -hmm. because they were, um, imagine people who were kidnapped and they mm -hmm. killed, uh, well, in those circumstances, they were buried there, their bodies complete. Hmm. And not the amount of bodies produced by the AUSE, bodies who were meant to be hidden, is much more than the guerrilla. The guerrilla will kill, of course, but they wouldn't try to hide the bodies immediately. So it was that's the difference between one and another grave. And one, one important point here is that um, in the framework of the justice and peace law, that the forensic experts went to paramilitary campsites, the graves in the campsites are not like the ones on the road. These are deeper, uh, better done to say, uh, to say it somehow. But that's the main issue, that the number of bodies who were produced and were meant to be, to remain hidden. Which, I mean, we know both groups are illegal. Both groups are responsible for you know, truly heinous and awful acts. But it shows, again, from a social science perspective, the different mentality in each group. So you've got the AUC or the Auto Defenses Unidas de Colombia, which is the main paramilitary group, but well, it was the paramilitary group when it was one entity. Um, and they know they're doing something very illegal. And so therefore, you know, and disappearing civilians. Of course, the FARC did so too. 
But in their mindset, it possibly sounds like it's an extension of their belief that they are fighting a war. And it's a, there's a very curious kind of dichotomy there. Uh, you know, no, no death, murder, assassination is good. But it, there's a difference there in, in the way they treat their dead. And I'm sure you saw this then in your investigations. There's that different, there's like the parallel concepts here. Yes. And um, it's, it's, I have uh, one of, I, I teach, and one of my students this last semester, she wrote a beautiful uh, piece. And one of the things that she said is that, uh, that she thought you would think that the main the main point was to kill somebody and afterwards they wouldn't care about the body. But then mainly with the paramilitary, they did care so much about the body that after death you could see all horrible things done to, to bodies. And this is something that, for instance, I've learned through forensic experts uh, and for instance, again, the paramilitary, the treatment on female corpses was uncomparable to what they did to men mm. or uh, bodies of people who were part of the LGTB community. Mm. So it's not only I not only I kill you and I hide you, so I make sure nobody knows where you are, but I also I continue my violence on your body on so many different ways in so many different different ways that were um when somebody found the body like these forensic experts uh they were uh blindfolded um, the uh how you say this the the underwear mm. you the way the underwear was placed in the body they could say this is for sure this person was raped um, or yeah, they, the, the way they place the bodies, the body parts of people with, I don't want to be too graphic because I know this is not easy to, to handle that, but yeah. And this is mainly by the, the paramilitary. The guerrilla did horrible things, as you said, I'm not going to say they didn't. The treatment of the body of their supposed enemy is is different. Mm. I, and when we, we talk about this, I mean, this is pretty awful, obviously, uh, but you are investigating this and you are interviewing people. Have you been emotionally and psychology, psychologically affected by all of this investigation that you have done? Yes, yes. yes. No, I mean, there's, it's, it's impossible, well, I would say, that it's impossible to hear all these stories mm -hmm. and not be affected by them. Um, but I also want to say that I think this is this time it's been more difficult than before um, for many reasons. And I think one of the reasons is that I had to do my field work via Zoom, which for an ethnographer is a nightmare. I was really reluctant. I waited until the last moment. I really wanted to fly to Colombia and I was not allowed by the university or couldn't go. Um, so I did my interviews via Zoom. Mm -hmm. And the positive 
effect of that is that my interviewees, very, very generous people, they were at home. So they felt at home. So they shared much more than I had ever shared. I mean, they were, these are the most rich interviews I have ever had on this topic. And I think it's because they were at home. When we were outside in, I don't know, in a restaurant, in a cafe, in their offices, well, there's so many things going on and they are aware where they are. But here they were on their own at home and they shared so much. And so the amount of detailed information and everything that I got was a lot. And again, as an effect of, of the Zoom, I remained at home. So I didn't move from my desk. Mm. Whereas if I had gone and interviewed the people, I would have what I call a cooling process. Mm. So from, I don't know, from the restaurant to my house, I would cool down. You know, I, I would have other things to do and other things to do happened to me, not only sitting there and being completely overwhelmed. Many of them cried, which is also not something that happens often. These are very tough people, but many of them cried during the interviews. So that was uh, very, very touching. And for me, it is emotionally heavy to yeah. talk about this and, and research these kind of topics. Absolutely, I'm I'm fascinated. This that uh, again, you, it's the they're at home, so they feel more relaxed and more open, and of course that leads to more grief, which they need to grieve. I mean, there's there's no Absolutely. way about it. But you, on the other hand, may be suffering more because you're not in a restaurant and you don't have the wind down or the cooling down. Uh, a period afterwards, like walking back home or remembering you need to get a bus or pay a bill or something, you know, the, the mundanity of day-to-day of -day life. So it, it yeah. sort of flipped for you, this one. And I'm sure as you're an eth uh, ethnographer, you had to write down these findings and put, put in that clause. This is what happened because of Zoom. And this is what happened when we were, uh, uh, you know, face-to-face physically i think that's that's truly a fascinating repercussion of of this covid era uh, of of how uh, you've been able to get even richer interviews through through what is quite an impersonal <laughs> setting yeah. i've got so, my laptop here and and sitting in in a room at the back of my house it's an impersonal it's so interesting um and as a follow on from that Obviously, you talk to the forensic scientists and so on. Do they get psychosocial and psychological help? Is that something that's organized by uh, their their entities where they work? No, not really. It's starting. Mm -hmm. uh, these two new groups are introducing psychosocial uh, support for the experts. So the thing is that they introduce types of psychosocial support for the victims. So when they go to an exhumation, they bring a psychologist who can be there and answer people's questions and, and be there and contain the situation a little bit. And as it happened, in some cases, of the, in some of these situations, it was so overwhelming that part of the team needed the, this psychosocial support. So they started to think about, okay, let's just make the person work with our experts and with the victims. But um, 
is not something that uh, they talk about often. Mm, they recognize it's tough, it's difficult. Uh, and this is something I'm really um, amazed by these people. And I think they are incredible human beings because they recognize how difficult this is to them, to their bodies, physically and emotionally. Uh, but it's how they feel that they are contributing somehow to make the country a better place. And they know it's a tiny, tiny thing. It's one, they're trying to identify one person at a time, but they are there. So they recognize it's hard, it's horrible, it's difficult, but they also tell you all these amazing stories when they are able to identify and they are able to bring the remains back. And I, the other day I was talking to Jaime, who's my co-researcher, and he was able to identify a the body of a person who they have been looking for and trying to identify for more than 10 years. And they did it. They were able to do it. And then he went to the house of this person and delivered the, the remains to her mother. And the mother remembered the time they were there. And she was so happy. I mean, so happy as happy as you can be. She was so grateful. Yeah. And, and so they have this very important moments in which all the hardship pays back. You know, it's like they want to be there and they want to contribute. And of course, for the the the, the victims' family, this is the an ability to you know properly grieve because there exactly. is something physical and something that you've researched quite extensively, and I think is a very important subject. Is is that and you were mentioning it there is that these forensic experts are not just witnesses uh you know not just scientists they are active actors in peace building and reconciliation i mean that's that's what we're getting at here they are you don't separate them from what's going on you don't separate them from the accord the peace accord from 2016 and you don't separate them from the jurisdicción especial para la paz they are part of it and 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 so you suggest that they understand that they are part of this. They understand the importance of their work. Yes, absolutely. They understand this and they they cherish this. Mm -hmm. And they are, I mean, they are very intelligent people. So they are also able to, to discuss with their authorities if they think something needs to be revised not that i'm not saying that it always gets revised but they have a voice and they and they say i i, I don't agree with this and we should do that and of course they have to follow they have to follow orders but they are active actors and and by telling us what happened to this person and to all these people they are constructing or or shaping what we know and shaping the conflict, you know, mm -hmm. the armed conflict. And we've talked about then, you've talked uh, about paramilitaries, you've talked about the guerrilla, uh, and now we need to we need to address the other side because nothing is uh, is straightforward in Colombia. <laughs> um, but we need to discuss <laughs> the you know the military role in this, and of course the most important at this moment and the most impacting uh, element was the or are the false positives which is 
uh, or the falsos positivos, uh, which is when obviously uh, I would say the easiest way of putting it is people in need of jobs, maybe drunks, maybe uh, slightly uh, mentally disabled, um, maybe people living on the streets were were tempted with the opportunity of employment in distant areas of Colombia. So up in Cesar, up in, you know, I guess, uh, Norte Santander, places like that. And then they were brought up to these places and summarily executed, dressed up as guerrillas, and then, you know, buried in mass graves up in these areas. This was then, the story was broken in around 2008 that this happened. And there was a sort of knock-on effect because at the same time, it would, they were, the, the military had been granted, I guess, rewards, financial rewards if the body count increased. And so this is why they then got involved in this most nefarious activity. And, and so how, I mean, how, you know, for forensic scientists investigating this, they're going a up against the establishment they're going up against a, you know a government entity can you tell us a little bit about what you found out from your investigations alongside this yes this is um i think here is one of the cases in which you see how forensic experts are active actors and not just they just don't tell us what the body says which is what forensic tends they tend to talk like that no it, the body talks. The body doesn't talk. You make the body talk. Uh, and with the false positive, it's amazing. Because what, from what I've seen is that what the forensic experts are able to do when they establish that this is a case of a false positive is that they flip the whole idea. So they flip, they have a guerrilla member mm -hmm. that through forensic identification becomes a civilian who's been now a victim of state violence. Mm -hmm. And you have a hero, which is the army, who's mm -hmm. saving us from this terrible war against insurgency. And you make this person or this group of people into perpetrators mm -hmm. and violators of human rights. And that's done through, and mainly through forensic uh, work. Because... I mean, I'm not saying that mothers and family members do not consider their children as victims before the forensic, mm -hmm. the forensics play a, play a part. Of course not. I'm saying this official kind of victim, of course, through uh, and thanks to forensic identification. So, and also something that is beautiful in analytical terms, of course, about these false positive cases is that forensic experts were called an article at the beginning to early 2008 and 2009 now it's they have understood now this thing better and they have testimonies of military saying what they did but at the beginning when they're trying to make sense of this and they had to um let me think how to put this they had to rely on their understanding of the armed conflict, of the armed actors, of how things happen in different 
places uh, in uh, violence wise and so they could start thinking about these bodies are not making sense mm-hmm. uh, so the, the the process of identifying a, a false positives a forensic expert will die if they hear us talking about <laughs> false positive but uh, an execution like this an extrajudicial execution uh, is to establish what is wrong, not what makes sense, but what is wrong in the scene, in the body, in the testimony. So you have on the one hand, the body. And these were bodies, and we know these through different uh, uh, sources, again, testimonies and family members and uh, journalists. We know, for instance, how the bodies were uh, wearing brand new uniforms and the boots were placed uh, in the wrong foot. But the, what we get when you go deeper with the forensics, they would say, for instance, the underwear, when you are a guerrilla member, you have, you have what all your belongings are on you. You don't have a bedroom where you put your things or, or a closet. You, it's, you carry your belongings everywhere. So you have your underwear is uh, with your name. And mainly, or most of the times, the girlfriend or the mother would embroider the name of the person. So this person would know, well, this is my underwear, you know? Uh, Also, they will carry the fork and spoon that they use, photographs, um, medication that they may be taking. And in these bodies, there was nothing. So it's as if they were born on that day, wearing that crazy uniform that didn't make any sense. Uh, and also, and then you have the testimony from the military. And they would, if you read at the, at the testimony, they would say it was, we killed this person in combat. And then an expert would tell you, if you are in combat and if you are killed by a Fusil. I don't know how to say that. Yeah, well, a bullet from a gun, yeah. But a fusil will just destroy whatever it touches. So you wouldn't have your head mm. because it's so, the, the speed and the strength is so much that it breaks whatever it touches. So, and to shot somebody on the head in the middle of a combat is really difficult. So the the wounds didn't make sense. Also, it was like, no, this is an execution. You can see it's so close. It's a close range. Um, The the way that the the wound is, or the bullet, it doesn't make any sense. So they had to go step by step and find, one of them put it beautifully. He said, we have to find where the lie is. We don't have to find where the truth lies, but we have to find where the lie lies. And then with that, and from there, solve this, this whole mess. Wow. I, I mean, you know, it leaves you speechless. And, and this, this, uh, this thing is of finding out what is wrong what is out of place. That's fascinating. It's not about finding the, the story straight away. It's about finding the errors in that story. Um, just quickly off the top of my head, I mean, you must know sort of how many 
people in Colombia? Or is there a rough figure of how many people in Colombia are, are missing in this fashion? Are there are many in the context of the armed conflict? Well, there are two figures that I work with. And none of is, I mean, there are no definitive, of course, figures anywhere in the world because to one of the effects of enforced disappearance is that you don't know. So oh. people are uh, are worried and they don't want and they fear to uh, say that there mm. somebody has been enforcedly disappeared, which is different from missing. Uh, so you have the figure from the center of historic, the National Center of Historic Memory, and they have around 8,000, 80,000. Mm-hmm. But then you have human rights organizations and they work with the figure of around 125,000. So it's an amazing, I mean, it's, there are towns that have less people than that. Oh yeah. I mean, so, we, I mean, we're talking about a discrepancy of 45,000 there as well. I mean, between one and the other, I mean, you, okay. You expect the human rights organizations maybe to be uh, on the upper end and you expect the government side of things to be on the lower end, but that's a big discrepancy when you're looking at family members and, and so on. I am so very grateful to you for giving this information and sharing your time. And, you know, we've covered these, these three entities, the paramilitaries, the guerrilla, and of course the military final, final uh, topic for conversation. How do you see all of this uh, developing then in terms of forensics? Uh, we've got elections coming up. We've got people trying to shut down the jurisdicción especial para la paz, which has shown itself to be incredibly useful and worthwhile. How do you, as a social scientist, having spent time alongside the forensic experts, how do you feel? I want to feel hopeful. I want to feel that there are more of us who can recognize the important and excellent work that has been done by the special jurisdiction and by the unit of the search and by the truth commission. Uh, I really hope that things continue to develop uh, and better, you know, of course it's not easy. And for forensic experts in these uh, groups, it's also not easy. They have faced all sorts of uh, difficulties, but I, I'm hopeful, or I want to be hopeful, that we have learned something as a society and that we came to realize that peace and reconciliation is just about being able to see, to recognize ourselves in other people. So, And that's something that forensic experts, I, I think, help us do or show that that can be done. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Maria I Fernanda. I, I'm hopeful too on this one. There are there are weeks where we do the podcast and I come out going, oh, I'm not so hopeful, but I am hopeful too. And let me take this moment to say thank you so much for your time and for sharing what is, you know, intensely uh, painful stories. Uh, yeah. and, and that you have been able to share this so coherently and clearly, and, and neither of us have cried, which is good, uh, but, uh, you know, but uh, thank you again. And I wish you all the best in this next project in, in Vienna. And 
It's been quite incredible. I've learned so much today. Thank you so much for for having me and for your questions and for making me think about these things, these topics in in different ways. So mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you uh, so much. It's been a great pleasure. We've been talking to Maria Fernanda Olarte Sierra. Uh, she's in Vienna at the moment, and uh, of course, thank you to everyone. This was pretty, pretty. Uh, hardcore episode this week episode 409 of course we'll be back next week with episode 410 uh and i think emily hart's going to take over for next week she's got someone lined up uh of course remember to support us on patreon or on ko-fi that's ko-fi.com and make the podcast more economically viable for us but thank you again for listening we've had a great run of interviews so far in 2022 and of course share the word and spread this all out on social media talk to your friends everything else thank you and goodbye goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 